great. Okay. Good evening. Uh, tonight we'll be talking about uh, the London Baptist Catechism, question number 30. For those of you that have been here recently, you'll know that for the last three weeks, we and there's a progression through the catechism. The last three weeks, we were, have been talking about Christ as prophet, Christ as priest, and Christ, uh, Christ as king. We're advancing to another uh, mini-module, and this will be a module of the, both the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. I get to do the humiliation side, and next week, are you, Nick? Are, Okay. We'll uh, guess the bright side, the exaltation. It's, it's a happy ending, and uh, we're grateful for that, but it's happy when we uh, particularly put it in light of the, what is called the humiliation of Christ. So if we look at the question tonight, and we'll advance. I have no I got a piece all over my paper. I am sorry to hear that. What did you eat? I am sorry to hear that. Um, uh, you're going to have to live with it. So, I'm sorry. We have technical difficulties in the front row here. The question that we're looking in tonight is, wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? Now, that is in uh, older English in the sense that we don't really talk that way nowadays. So I put an asterisk at wherein, and if you use the words of what, of what did Christ's humiliation consist, then perhaps the question might uh, take you in the right direction. So the answer we can read uh, without the scripture. Uh, why don't we all read the, the answer? And the answer is, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So, we can see, at least this is the way I, I look at this, it, the way the answer is structured, there's really three aspects uh, that we'll focus on tonight. The first part of the answer um, regarding Christ's humiliation, and we're going to talk in a second about this word humiliation. First, it consisted in, in his being born, being uh, becoming incarnate, in a low condition, made under the law. So this is just referring to Christ leaving the heavenly place uh, with God the Father and coming to earth as a man. So that is step one. The second part, the middle part, undergoing the miseries of this life. Uh, he did not have uh, a life that he could have had if he had uh, other objectives. He's God. And... He could have sat on a gold throne and had servants peel his grapes, and that is not what the plan was of the triune Godhead back before the foundation of the earth. 
undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the cursed death of the cross. And then the third part of the answer, his humiliation consisted in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So, when we look at these three aspects, the first thing we need to do is touch base on this word humiliate or humiliation. Humiliate would be the root word. And there's like different types of humiliation, different levels of humiliation. One of them, one type of humiliation is when you're mortified. One type of humiliation, you're simply embarrassed or ashamed. And what we're really looking at tonight is the third definition to reduce someone to a lower position in one's own eyes or others' eyes. So you are uh, envisioning Christ who is heaven, you know, he's, he's God, and he becomes a man, and we know how we are, we know how man can be and how limited we are, and yet Christ chose to be with us in the form of a man. So that is the nature of this humiliation. He's not mortified, and um, he's not going to be ashamed of anything that he did or does, because everything that he did and everything that he does is holy. So, with that as an introduction, we'll look at this first part, this first part about being born in a low condition. So again, this is referring to Christ becoming incarnate in the flesh, and I want to cover the verses this week, so at least you'll have like breadcrumbs, you'll have that trail of breadcrumbs when you go home, you can follow these verses and basically use that as a springboard. It's impossible to cover everything that this topic could cover, but all the verses will be in here. Uh, Luke 2.7 just says, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. So the first part of this verse is just referring to Christ becoming incarnate. And, you know, we can view that as being not a big deal, and that would be terribly wrong, because for God, who is infinite, for a part of the Godhead who is infinite, to become incarnate, to become a man, even though by the doctrine of hypostatic union he's still 100% God, he's a, but he's a 100% man, there's a certain limitation assigned to that, and we're going to look at that uh, in a second. Um, but probably the verse that wasn't referenced that is perhaps the most revealing to me is uh, in the book of Philippians where Paul is writing to the saints in Philippi, and he writes this, where he's, he's, he's telling the constituents there to have, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, uh, 
who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, um, I'm probably going to get behind on my slides here, and I really can't see them. It would be nice if we can get some lights turned off back there, but it's not going to happen. I think, I think yeah. you cannot turn off the overhead lights without turning all of them off, and then nobody can see. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you can't. We have a, that that's on. a really old projector. We're Understand. We have a new one. Time to work on it. All right. Uh, but if you look at uh, the next slide, this being born in a low condition, this uh, word kenosis is a word that we should be familiar with. And I'd like to just read uh, a comment from John MacArthur uh, regarding this word kenosis and it is right where the green tab is who here is familiar with the word the term kenosis okay the pastors uh, all right here's um when we when we look at uh the commentary from john macarthur uh, just regarding uh how he emptied himself this is what it's referring to from this greek word comes a theological word kenosis the doctrine of christ's self-emptying in his incarnation this was a self-renunciation not an emptying himself of deity nor an exchange of deity for humanity Jesus did, however, renounce or set aside his privileges in several areas. Number one, heavenly glory. While on earth, he gave up the glory of a face-to-face relationship with God and the continuous outward display and personal enjoyment of that glory. Number two, independent authority. During his incarnation, Christ completely submitted himself uh, to the will of his Father And number three, divine prerogatives. He set aside the voluntary display of his divine attributes and submitted himself to the Spirit's direction. Um, Eternal riches. While on earth, Christ was poor and owned very little. Number five, a favorable relationship with God. Um, He felt the... He... um, You know, it's kind of hard to see. He felt the Father's wrath, okay... Uh, for human sin while on the cross. And again, Paul uses the Greek uh, word form, which indicates exact essence, as a true servant, which indicates exact essence. Uh, Jesus submissively did the will of his Father. So you can see what Christ gave up. And it's difficult to appreciate because we live our lives and we get caught up in packing out a living and to-do lists and things don't go our way and we're jumping through hoops and responding to uh, text messages and all these sensory inputs and oftentimes fail to recognize the, the magnitude of that, that sacrifice, of that condescension 
and I don't mean that in a way of, of somebody looking down their nose at you, but rather being in a lofty position and for a greater purpose, reducing your image, reducing your presence to something less for a greater good, if that makes sense. So we read here in the second chapter of Philippians, the kenosis, and then if we look at not only being born in a, a low, is really throwing me off, Pastor Nick, not being able to see my slides. All right. Uh, being born in a low condition, Second uh, Corinthians 8, 9, in, in case... It's all behind you, too, so if you want to see I'll use my mirrors on my glasses. I have everything right here. I'm just not used to reading off a platform. I'm used to looking out. Anyway, <laughs> 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he, came, he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So what do you hear in that, in that verse? You hear that his condescension to becoming a man and he he was god with all these infinite attributes of of being self-existent of being ever present uh, omnipresent of of being omnipotent of being omniscient um he didn't necessarily give up everything but he gave up a lot and there's a very good reason for that. He became poor so that by his poverty, we, through faith that the Godhead gives us, allows us to become rich in Christ. So, born in a low condition, but for a good reason. Born under the law. What's so important about that? Well, we know that he's born under the law just by uh, Galatians 4, 4, saying that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. So that is a fact, and that is all that verse is going to tell us um, in an immediate sense. But when we look at Galatians 5, 3, it's going to further emphasize this is the Apostle Paul speaking, saying that he testifies again to every man, and Jesus has now become a man, every man who accepts, accepts circumcision, uh, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now, does that seem right, that Jesus, I guess if we do that, uh-oh, now we're toast. Oh, well, okay. We're on the one that has relations. Yeah. Don't be jealous, Nick. All right. I, uh, there we go. When we, when we consider that Christ is under the law, when we think of the law, what do we think of? And if you, is taking an effort here. When, when, you, when you think of the law, some people think of the law as, as being um, burdensome. Well, yes, um, it does many things. And you know, part, of the, part of the law, I mean, it's holy, so there is nothing wrong with it. Keep that in mind. But the 
purpose of the law is not to bring one to salvation. It is to recognize your need for salvation. It's to recognize your sinfulness. And when we look at these passages, and I'm just, they're all in Romans 7, but there's, you know, several other passages like that, like this, uh, regarding the law. And if you want to turn to Romans 7, I did not put them out on a screen, but we can read in Romans 7, 5, for example, for while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. It almost seems like the law is doing something it wasn't intended to do, but Paul is saying that it could actually um, uh, arouse sinful passions. It's a long discussion to kind of get into exactly uh, what is happening there, but it's not saying this is how you be saved. It's saying don't do this, and you see what you're not supposed to do, and maybe a person here, a person there might say, ah, you know, I might want to check that out. Grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Um, verses uh, 8 and 9, For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive, apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive, and I died. So this is... Uh, a statement on how the law operates on you to, I don't want to say quash you, but it, it makes you realize that your sinfulness is to, to God, is what is going to bring God's wrath upon you. And then Romans seven thirteen, 13, uh, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And that's primarily what we see uh, regarding the function of the law. I mean, there's multiple functions, but this is primary, letting us know exactly what sin is. So, I mean, Jesus is, is God. Why, sh why should he have to submit himself to such an authority because he was born a man. Simple as that. And because of that, again, it's a form of condescension of going from where he was with God the Father in heaven and coming down to earth as a man and being subjected to a, a laundry list of, again, holy laws, but nevertheless, something that would restrain you and restrain Jesus. Fortunately, he's the only one that ever was able to overcome the restraints and not uh, fail in one simple and in one regard or another. He ended up being perfectly sinless, and of course that is uh, the blessing that we receive, that in his sinless life it is part of the good news. So, um, we see the part now about Jesus becoming incarnate. We see the, the kenosis. We see the, the condescension from being God to being man. Well, what does this result in? Did he 
still nevertheless find a way to just always have the nicest house and the nicest chariot and things like that. Plenty of money, the best food and everything. And, you know, he's, he's one that went 40 days and 40 nights without food. He um, found himself, uh, you know, looking for food. Uh, he really did not have, in the way of worldly possessions, uh, anything that you would say, you know, he's got it made, okay? So, in undergoing the miseries of this life, the, the most stark, the most dramatic, and perhaps the most relevant, and I'd like you to join me in reading Isaiah chapter 53, which is uh, a classic messianic prophecy, and it's going to describe basically the, the miseries, uh, the humiliation that Christ would experience. And fortunately, Isaiah continues to write after this segment the exaltation of Christ as well. There's a happy ending. But if we look, uh, even though, uh, well, I, I shouldn't have said Isaiah 55, 2 and 3. That is a typo. It should have been 53 verses 2 and 3. And am I still behind? I need a clicker up here. I mean, a person to click for me. So, what? 53? 53. Isaiah 53, verses 2 and 3 are those verses that are referenced in the Catechism. But what I, I think to really capture the entire message here, I wanted to start back in chapter 52 at verse 13, where we read, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut down their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them. They see and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. This is a humble beginning. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by, the men, by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. But oppression 
and judgment, he was taken away, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off and out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So when you hear this prophecy from Isaiah, you can immediately go to the crucifixion scene with the piercing being the spear in his side. He was mocked, uh, placing a crown of thorns on his head. Uh, He was stripped of his clothes. Uh, He was whipped brutally uh, beyond what was legally allowed by the, the Jews. Uh, put the cloak back on. They ripped it off later when his back had all scabbed on. It's just a, 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 a brutal description of what happened to him leading up to the cross. Um, that's not all of the misery that he experienced because through, throughout his teaching and preaching, his miracles... I mean, his his miracles were despised. And, you know, he was accused of acting on behalf of Beelzebub. And, of course, he had an answer for everything. But the accusations that came his way were merciless. We remember in uh, John 18, when Jesus is before Pontius Pilate, and Pilate is asking him questions about who he is. You say you are a king, and, and he says, for this purpose, I have come to her for this purpose, I was born uh, to bear witness of the truth. A noble, uh, ultimately, the most noble thing that you can do. Who would not want to hear the truth? Yet, what did the people of the day do with the truth? What do people do today with the truth? They spit at it. They make up their own truth in our postmodern era. Our truth is truth, not the absolute truth put forth by God. So, um, another part of the undergoing the miseries of this life, we read in Hebrews 12, verses 2 and 3. Look into Jesus, now as the writer of Hebrews, who we're not exactly sure who that might be. Um, you may have your best guess. But he wrote, Look into Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility, against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted so it's an admonition to people that you know i know the writer is writing to this group um of uh possibly maybe probably messianic jews who are learning uh how to get through a difficult time and they're reminded how jesus really went through a difficult time. And if you hang on to Jesus through your difficult time, he will pull you through. 
So we do see that Jesus had to go through <clears throat> this hostility, and it seemed like it, 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 it started from almost the moment that he started to preach. You know, the Pharisees, the whitewashed tombs, uh, they didn't want their power structure to be disturbed. Uh, some of them truly believed this was blasphemous and uh, what Christ was teaching, but Christ had the truth, and um, he was nevertheless, again, either mocked or disbelieved uh, or disparaged throughout his uh, ministry here on earth. So, what happens eventually, going from bad to worse, is undergoing the wrath of God. Undergoing the wrath of God is, we don't, we don't even know how to limit what the wrath of God uh, can look like. But if there's somebody that we would think should not have to go through the wrath of God would be part of the Godhead. And Jesus had to undergo the wrath of God the Father. In Luke twenty-two forty-four, we read, time to go. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. The despair that Jesus was feeling was what he had to do. He had a mission to accomplish. I'm going to read, um, I'm, I'm just going to continue with this for a moment. On the next slide, we read in Matthew 27, 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what we're hearing is an outpouring of divine wrath on the sun because he has become the bearer of our sins. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, we read, For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So uh, we'll recognize this as uh, the doctrine of imputation and substitution. Uh, Christine, you asked a question earlier this morning, I believe, about you know how can we be righteous, or maybe it was Franz that asked that question. One, one of one of you two. Anyway, unto ourselves, um, we can't be righteous, but the righteousness of Christ is imputed into us. Now, if you want to see a movie on exactly physically how that happens, you're not going to find one. It's doctrinal, it's spiritual, it's supernatural, and it's not something that you'll be able to see with your eyes. You're not going to see the ghost, you know, just suddenly going into you and putting a a halo, a bright halo over your head or anything like that. But it's a two-way 
power change going here. Our sin is going on to Jesus and his righteousness is going into us. The doctrine of imputation to credit or ascribe something to a person or a cause to attribute. So Jesus has attributed to us his righteousness upon salvation. What do we attribute to him? Our sin. And that is why, as God the Father is looking at placing his his wrath on sin, it has to be zeroed in on his son on the cross because all of our sins have gone to him. They shouldn't have. They shouldn't have been that way. We were given the opportunity at the point of Adam, and uh, that did not happen. So the doctrine of imputation is what leads to the wrath of God the Father being placed on God the Son because he has had all of our sins imputed into him. And then uh, undergoing death on a cross. And some of you have already heard this. Um, the death on a cross was the worst. I mean, there was, there was uh, you know, there's hanging, there's being stoned. You know, you could get a sword through you. I don't really want to get into all the different ways that you can die. I have said that I would prefer not to go by drowning, fire, or wood chipper. But I don't think they had wood chippers back in that day. But they did have crucifixion, which is absolutely brutal, where a person actually is going to suffocate to death over a long period of time as they push. I don't know if you've ever tried to hang from a chin-up bar or a, any kind of bar over your head, and you realize after a while that you can't breathe and you need to pull yourself up so that it releases your diaphragm to allow your lungs to expel air and then take in your next breath. But then you get tired and you're hanging there again and then you can't breathe and you have to pull yourself up and it's like up, down, up, down. And meanwhile, you know, your hands are pierced, your feet are pierced. Um, It's... Your feet are pierced so you can't pull yourself up. I never thought of that. Well, it, what it allowed you to do is to push yourself up. That's not so when much not when your feet are. Oh no, I think I think it's terrible. So anyway, we're 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 probably borderline speculating when we get into the minutia. We do understand that crucifixion was the most brutal way to kill somebody, and it's and it's like it's amazing what man can do. It's amazing what man can do today. Uh, it's like nothing new is under the sun, but back in that day, crucifixion was the, was the worst way to die. And Christ, after all of the brutality, um, after all of the punishment, uh, when he was placed on the cross, um, he had to just undergo further brutality. Philippians 2.8 reads, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that phrase, you could tell, further emphasizes it's not just 
how you die. You're not going to die in your sleep. You're not even going to die with a, you know, just like a nice clean sword through your gut or something like that. You're going to go through an absolutely brutal and miserable death. And uh, I really don't want to beat that up anymore. Um, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So um, we're, we're seeing that it is, it's beyond measure just how brutal this type of death is. And Christ voluntarily undertook the cross for a greater good. And finally, the third point regarding uh, being buried. You know, we know that, uh, you know, he was buried and eventually he rose from the tomb and that's going to be part of Pastor Nick's uh, talk next week. But uh, 1 Corinthians 15.4 talks about that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Um, Matthew 12.40 for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And finally, uh, Philippians uh, 2, verses 4 to 7, is going to lead us into what, you know, so what, what do we do with this, this humiliation? You don't want it to get to a, a so what. It would, I would be surprised if a Christian could go through this understanding and go through these verses and say, you know, so what? Obviously, God has done a, a supernatural act on our behalf, something that we could never accomplish ourselves. And this is why salvation is by God, for, by grace we have been saved, uh, is a gift of God, not of works lest anyone should boast uh, that we, in, in Romans 8, it talks about how we're not reconciled to God, uh, that we don't, we can't, we can't, we don't even have the ability to merit salvation. There's nothing that we can do. It is all um, an act of God. So in Philippians 2, verses 4 to 7, this this concept of, of being humble, do we need to be humble? We'll, we'll hear about it, and we'll also hear about it in Ephesians. In uh, verses 4 and 5 of chapter 2, we, and this is, again, the kenosis uh, passage, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And again, what was the point? What was his purpose? When you do something, what is your purpose? Is your purpose, and what you do, is it to glorify God? Uh, is it to glorify you? If you are not humble, you will find yourself continually seeking glory for yourself. Um, Ephesians 5.21 talks about submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Why should I have to submit to anybody? Well, 
If Jesus submitted to death, even to death on a cross, should we not submit to Christ? Should we not submit uh, in love to one another? And that, that almost seems like an oxymoron. You can't both submit at the same time because you, someone has to submit and you're going lower and lower. The point being to be uh, of one mind, to be of the body, to be of the body of which Christ is the head, to work with one another to recognize none of us are perfect and that we should give an ear to our brother or sister in Christ in love and not pounce on them, not believe that we know everything there is to know about the Bible, about God's word. James 4, 6 says, but he gives more but he gives more grace therefore it says god opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble and finally in matthew 23:12 whoever exalts himself will be humbled this is christ talking and whoever humbles himself will be exalted so we can see that uh, humility of of being humble not self-deprecating, okay? There's nothing, there's, there's nothing holy about self-deprecation, about saying, oh, you know, I'm dumber than a dog, and, you know, and seeking for somebody to say, oh, no, you're, you're pretty smart, you know, you're at least smarter than a dog. And, and you know, you're just looking for uh, accolades or something like that. And there's, again, there's no, nothing holy about that, but if you are humble in how you approach people, if you're thinking of the greater good, if you um, are recognizing how God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the earth um, developed this plan of redemption and it entailed the condescension of God the Son of Christ to come to earth as a man and that through his sinless life, through his death, his burial, his resurrection, by faith in Christ, that we can have eternal life. And that is all to the glory of God. That is it for the um, Presentation. I would like to take. Well, should we pray and then take questions, and then people yeah, can bolt in between? Okay. Well, why don't we do that? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, again we are grateful uh, that we have Your Word to contemplate, to meditate upon, when we think about where we were before um, You removed the blinders from our eyes before that day of salvation. Um, we were all we were all doing you know what was right in our own eyes and following our own truth and uh, leading lives of futility and we're grateful Lord that you did remove the scales that you did save us that you've given us your perfect and holy word that we have uh, now a perfect truth by which we can uh, determine how our lives should be led, how we can bring honor and glory to you. You are God. Um, what you have done 
for us uh, is, you know, through the sacrificial um, death of, of your son Jesus that uh, it's uh, of a magnitude beyond what we can comprehend. We're grateful to know what we do know. We're grateful to know sufficiently um, how to live our lives and what to believe. And uh, it's by your grace and by your mercy. And we praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay, I got I was waiting for you. I, I just didn't feel like I needed to say anything more. Go ahead. Okay, so your comments on self-deprecation. I mean, is, is that... You, you go straight to the non-theological, the one non-theological thing that I said. <laughs> I mean, you had to say it, and I have an what? eye for detail. I know, okay. it, threw, it threw me too. What? Oh, thank you. So, what are you saying? So, so your, your, uh, your thing on self-deprecation, are you like 100% anti-self-deprecation? Because... From my experience, there are ways you can still self-deprecate without also being like you know, attention-seeking and whatnot. Right? Do you, do you agree on that? Not, um, so, I'm not going to. Um, I'm I'm not going to try to hold this hill on this matter. It's one that I can let go of. When people are uh, kind of just messing around. It, you know, as as long as it's not crude. You know, if the, sarcasm is what's the root of sarcasm? I think it's like tearing of skin or something like that. Self-deprecation usually comes along with sarcasm. I'm not a um, a fan of constant sarcasm. But I grew up with it, and half of my life was not being saved, and so it's a habit that I've kind of had to boot. I don't want it to be the foundation of my life. Something may slip out once in a while. And as long as it's not crude, as long as it's not offensive, um, I just don't need to say anything more. Uh, if it's the way you live your life, I think you, you know, may run into difficulty somewhere. That's just a counseling message, not a theological response. Yes, John. Carol. Oh, I just wanted to say sometimes there's like a how what you see that term as meaning. And there is that humility of knowing that we're sinners. And that way we're recognizing how lowly we are, really are. But then on the other hand, where self-deprecation wouldn't apply is when we realize what we've been given in Christ. And it takes faith to believe that. Because we can look at ourselves and say, oh man, am I a sinner? But on the other hand, God chose us, redeemed us, purified us in Christ. And so we trust in his work. So from that standpoint, we see ourselves as privileged children of the, of, of the king. So I don't know if maybe that's what Chris was saying about that humility of being, um, knowing that we're sinners. Well, I agree with all that, but frankly, I don't even know how we got into this discussion in the first place. <laughs> John? He was asking a question, and I just, I would just about righteousness. Wait, I'm trying. I'm sorry. Our hearts are so deceiving and full of deceit that a lot of times I think, just in my own life, we can, I can have 
know, a poor need or whatever, and I don't even realize it, right? And sometimes it'll take the person who knows me well to say, well, are you asking God to search you and try you in this matter? And sometimes I think we need to hear that because, you know, we really don't know uh, the ways that we're uh, prone to sin in some in some of these areas, you know. So it doesn't always mean that it's a sin. Oh no, no, I don't. I, I didn't even say it was it was a sin. It's it's it no, might be very neutral. And Chris, I'm not uh, dis dismissing your question. Maybe I'm wrestling with uh, really not knowing the answer. The, the point, like what Carol was bringing up, is that uh, being being humble. I mean, we just read verses on you know Jesus said that the exalted will be humbled and the humbled will be exalted. But self-deprecation, when you are, if you're using it just to bring attention to yourself for your purpose, you know, that's, that's not being humble. Right. If you are with friends and, you know, somebody's one-upping another and, and if, as long as it doesn't go crude or whatever, right. I mean, that's just people having fun. And I don't have a problem. I don't have a problem with that. And that's about as far as I can take it. I mean, typically in my experience of self-deprecation, how I define it is just pointing out your own faults. You know, it's not, I've, I've never really heard uh, your ways of it, um, but it's just how I've seen it being done is just people. Well, there's, there's real, right. you know, you have real faults and then you have false thoughts. For, for you to say, again, you know, I... I, my dog is more intelligent than me. I, you know, I don't know why you're asking uh, me what I think on this subject. And obviously, you're smarter than your dog, so that's you're maybe drawing. It's not. It's not true. It's not true that you're not as smart as your dog. Okay, right? Pastor Nick says it depends on what kind of dog it is. All right. <laughs> um, yeah, but that's just taking it to literally and playing semantics. So you can. Uh, recognize through self-examination that you have a weakness, yes, and you speak of it, I don't really call that self-deprecation. Right. So, mm. so when the Apostle Paul says, here's a faithful saying, Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. He's well, self-deprecating, but, he, but the motive behind it is, all, is what really matters. Because a lot of young people, especially I see when they're like, oh, I'm so dumb or I'm so ugly. Really what they're doing is they're fishing for a compliment. Yeah. They're trying to get somebody to come along and say, no, no, you're not that bad because that, to them, that's any form of affirmation they want it. So that's not actually a humbling. So the whole right. point of it is whoever humbles himself. So a person who's humbling themselves is seeing the truth of their wretched state. They're seeing the weight of their sin and they're willing to acknowledge it, not so that someone could come along and say, no, you're not as bad as you think, but because they need to admit it. Right. Just if this is truly what I am, I, I need Christ. I, apart from Him, I'm hopeless. So that kind of self-deprecation is perfectly justified. It is a form of humbling. But I think what Ross was identifying is that some of the self-deprecating actions that we see today in our world are actually not very humble at all. Right. They're just a veiled attempt at yes. gaining attention or or getting a laugh out of everyone, which makes them like you more, which is the opposite of humbling yourself. Right. So well, humbling is making. Um, you be lower than what you are. Or? Uh, you're important. You're not that important, really. 
or, or even acknowledging that you're lower than you wish you were. Right? Yeah, yeah. You're, right? you're, you're not lower than you are. You, you are, depends on what you're comparing. If you compare yourself to God, you are low. So am I. So is everyone in this room. So to say that I am low compared to God, that no, you're you, just speaking the truth. Yeah, but you are being modest about yourself and knowing that you are not that important to whatever. Okay. You're well, modest. Yeah. You. Is that what you're trying to say? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I say that there's a distinction that sometimes is hidden from us on these issues. Like, is there a time when we can think that we're not being self-deprecating when we actually are in a worldly way versus doing it in a biblical way? What would that be? Well, like Nick said, like, there's, like the apostle, obviously, what he did was, you know, from the right motive to, you know, to reveal that he had a deficiency and that he believed that he was a chief of all sinners. Whereas someone who's doing it like, you know, the young person is just doing it to seek attention. Do you think that there is, not only, we know that the distinction exists, but do you believe that believers can, are susceptible, some more than others, to be uh, deceived in this area? Well, I think anybody can be deceived. Right, and so I think, to answer Christopher's question, there's some people who, don't struggle with self-deprecation at all because they're just so full of themselves. And then there's other people who um, really beat themselves up and don't see God really at work in their lives sometimes. And sometimes they may be doing it like the way Nick said, like where they're trying to have people encourage them and build them up and seek attention. And then there's some that are just transparent. I mean, sometimes in a TMI kind of way. Well, let's see. Like, well, I'm glad you shared that, but I'm not sure I needed to know that. Let's just, let's just simply say that the Apostle Paul set the example when he says that he's the chief of all sinners. What he's bringing attention to is that people know where he came from and that he murdered a lot of people. He murdered a lot of Christians. He imprisoned a lot of Christians, male and female, and that's what he's bringing attention to. He's bringing attention to this is where I was and this is where I is by the power of God. So he's bringing attention not to himself for people to pat him on the back and say, you know, you're really, you're, you're really probably the smartest guy that I know or you're really the best looking guy that I've ever met, or, you know, whatever. You know, people that are fishing for compliments, if that's their only purpose, it's, it's all about me, that I'm not into. That uh, doesn't have a, a good purpose. What do people think about the fact that Christ had, was face to face with God the Father and he gave it up? Right, because we could spend all this time talking about self-deprecation, right. but the whole exactly. point of the lesson was Thank that you. Christ humbled himself. The one who should never self-deprecate was willing to let himself be lowered down. So really that needs to be our focus. Yes. We don't want to get so sidetracked. And therefore, that we missed the whole point of the great 
But he didn't self-deprecate. He no, himself. he humbled himself. But there is an aspect where we think oh, we're wait, 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 wait. Minus 10 to the next person that says self-deprecate or any other route. Minus 10 what? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Minus is minus. Um, so how could so, Jesus do that? Well, first of all, do you agree that he did do that? I don't think he self-deprecated. No, no. Minus 10. No. We're talking about what do you think about the fact that Jesus was in heaven with perfect fellowship, holy fellowship with God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, the triune Godhead as one, and he had to leave the face to face presence with his father to come to earth, to, to condescend himself, to empty himself. What do you think about that? Is, is that, can, can you comprehend it? Can you comprehend the magnitude of that change? It was his love for us and the love for what he had created. And he says, I need to go there. I need to save these people. Yeah. And can you quantify that love? I can't. Who can quantify that love? Is it this much? You could try that. Well, technically, yeah, how so? you're just going like this and not like doing this. Okay. That's infinite. All right. Can you see the, the, the magnitude of this, of the what they call the humiliation of Christ, that he humbled himself to become a man. Yeah, Carol. I just wanted to say we can't even understand it, I don't think, because we have just only what God's told us in his word, but we can't even fathom what God is and how beautiful and wonderful it is to be in heaven and to be in his presence because we haven't experienced it in our limited, that's something we look forward to. But Jesus did. He knew. He he was there. And that that I, I just don't think we could even begin to understand what a great sacrifice that was. So if it's beyond our comprehension how great the sacrifice was, what does that mean to us and how we should live our lives? A lot of gratitude. Humility. Self-deprecation. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. <laughs> All right, we're in done. On, in awe and wonder, too, I, I just remember a small thing that Jesus says when he's on trial. It's going through one of his various trials. I think he says it to Pilate. I can't remember. But he said, if I, if I wanted to, I could call down the host of heavenly A legion of right ten. Just ten. Like, think about that. That at any time he could have, in a moment, just said a word, and all of his enemies would be vanquished. All of them. I mean, how many times have we been... And like had to endure something, and uh, I just had too much, and I just stopped. You know, I, I give up before it's over because it's just too much for me to bear. But Christ has at any moment, any point in the timeline, could say a word, and all of his enemies are vanquished, and he's completely free of the burden of human flesh and limitations of that nature that he took on. And yet he chose not to. He just he stayed in it, and he did it because what he was accomplishing yeah. was not. So much for himself, but for us, he was he was releasing us from the righteous wrath that we had earned, 
and just humbles me to no end to think that you know at any point he could have just said this is enough, but he yep. didn't. He waited till the end until it was finished. And and just to add emphasis to that point, when we look back at, and I think it was King Hezekiah, and they're being attacked by the Assyrians, and Sennacherib was the general, and his force of 500,000 people, I believe, uh, were all wiped out by one angel. Imagine what 10,000 angels could do. And, and Christ wasn't saying, oh, by the way, this is all I got. He just <laughs> said, you know, this is who I, you know, uh, you know, I've got in my back pocket right now, and basically there's, there's nothing uh, that isn't beyond the power of Christ. And so for him to not call upon that, but to continue forth with the crucifixion, it's really it's remarkable, and it's kind of hard for us to respond to such love in a worthy manner, but we can try. And why is it hard? Why is it hard? Because we're ignorant. We're very ignorant. Uh, we actually, um, are, are, I'll, I'll say that we're blind if we cannot see. Um, go to that passage in Second Peter. Um, Just don't forget, God's love is infinite. God is infinite. We are so limited in our capacities to things like he does in any way. There might be a better word than ignorant, because ignorant implies that you could see it, but you choose not to. So, ignorant, ignoring there, you know? So it's, it's more a matter of the, the finite limitations of who we are as human beings, that we can't even comprehend if we gave it our full focus and just spent all of our lives looking. Is it beyond that, even then? Which, that's different than ignoring, right? I think that it's bigger than that. So I'm going to put but it down. Don't forget, though, we're, we're very sinful creatures. We are not without sin. Our sin's going to influence us to ignore it then. For sure. Yeah. In 2 Peter chapter 1, and I'm going to read a, a short list of things that have been, uh, that we have the capability uh, to achieve uh, being indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and if we're spirit-filled, starting in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, to keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So yeah, there's a reason. I, I like the way that the Apostle Peter puts it, that if we don't remember what Christ has done for us, we are not going to bear the fruit that God has intended for us to produce. Does that make sense? Amen. Anything else? I mean, I hate to have people leave before 8 o'clock because be we're just not used to it. Well, I think of the Lord Jesus, I think, when he said, come unto me all you. 
think about this issue, I, I thought Nick's right. The context is the Lord Jesus, right? And, and him bringing himself, right? Damn low, right? For, for our benefit. But, and that's trying to emulate Christ. I think it's like, like they were saying about the incomprehensibility of God. When, you know, we can't compare ourselves to God. We can't even, we just don't measure up, even in our obedience, right? And that's the hardest part for us to try to comprehend. It's like, in human understanding, we're always going to fall short. And we should ask God to show us these things and not just assume that we're doing things the way that he has instructed us to. You know, one of my prayers is, Lord, reveal to me where I'm not honoring you, you know, so that I can grow in that area, right? Because those areas affect other people. Well, they affect me. You know, and they affect my relationship with God. So meekness is one of those things where if we don't ask God to constantly show us, we may think that we're being meek when we're not, you know. And it's just something that is going to be a wrestling match as long as we've got this fallen nature. So my, my one comment to that, and I thank you for sharing that, is that um, when you say that, you know, God is infinite and therefore imperfect and therefore we cannot you know, begin to uh, achieve being like God. And uh, it just reminds me to bring up the, I don't know if it's like a story or whatever, uh, the, uh, like it's almost like a parable of the starfish where the, some, some boy is walking along the shore, a bunch of starfish have been uh, washed up on shore from a storm and he's going out, picking one up and throwing it back in the water to save it and picks up another and throws it out and this old man comes by and says, son, what are you doing? He says, I'm throwing starfish back in the, the sea so they can live. And he goes, you couldn't possibly make a difference. Look at them. There's, you know, like thousands. There's tens of thousands of them. You're not going to make a difference. He picked another one up, throws it in the water and said it made a difference to that one. So maybe we can't do everything but we can at least do that one, and go do that one, go do that, go do that, do what we can do. Anyway. So how can we be righteous? Practice is perfect. Uh, you yourself can. I don't want to say die because that. I mean, that's you a, that's the easy. You make yourself righteous. Right, but in Sunday school, yeah. he said we are. We are righteous. It said Christ's righteousness has been imputed into us so that God the Father sees the righteousness of Christ. We're living on borrowed righteousness. We are living on borrowed righteousness. But I think a lot of our incentive to have these qualities is out of love for Christ. Because he's done so much for us. We want to practice him. We want to please him. We want to try and, you know, develop these qualities. Yeah, Yeah. We shall see him as he is. So, the day is kind of one, one day. That'll be a good day. 
Um, and blessed is those that are able to go through those doors before 8 p.m. It'll be the first <laughs> time in three months. <laughs> I'm leaving now. <laughs> All right, Thanks I think boss. we're done. All right, Thanks for joining us tonight. Good. It was a good one. Is that your phone or mine? I think that's mine.